Well, if you're able, please stand with me. We're going to read the scriptures together. Uh, I want to refresh ourselves to the context of Galatians chapter 6. So I'm going to read the whole section to you, verses 1 through 10. Uh, I will be reading out of the New King James Version, and then we'll pray together. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 10. Brethren, if any man or if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will weep, will reap, well, I'm sorry, it's a COVID thing, I'm telling you. <laughs> for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for its instruction. And um, Lord, help us this morning not to make the mistake of judging your word, but posturing our hearts in such a way that it would judge us evaluate us and tell us where we're off, tell us where we're on, and um, yeah, so just minister to us this morning, we pray. And Lord, we thank you that uh, Brad and Audrey and Chris and Janet are doing better. <clears throat> we pray that you would continue to be with them, pray that they would recover quickly, that they wouldn't have this lingering fatigue and, and uh, some of the respiratory garbage, Lord that they would come out strong and, and just be back with us. So, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please be seated. Well, when we come to chapter 6, Paul begins to address uh, a few problems that were taking place in the churches of Galatia as a result of the doctrine of the Judaizers. I don't have time to cover again all that those, that those people are, all that they did. We will quickly review, but their doctrines, the doctrines of the Judaizers, that is the teaching of legalism, had divided the church, and then it was pitting the people against one another. And what was happening, really, there was sort of a showdown between two gospels, the gospel of grace, and then this counterfeit gospel that was perverted by principles of legalism. And as Paul explains to us, these two gospels are they're mutually exclusive. They're even hostile toward one another. To the Romans, Paul said, look, it's, it's either all of grace or it's all of works. It cannot be a mixture of them. It's either one or the other. And there's no amount of works that any of us can do to satisfy the demands of a perfect holy God. It's just not possible. We're too broken. We're too sinful. And uh, so these concepts, these gospels, they're mutually exclusive one is completely of faith, the other is of the flesh. And as we looked at in the first five chapters, Paul confronted and then he corrected this false gospel, demonstrating that Christ 
had indeed fulfilled all of the Old Covenant in its entirety by establishing a new covenant in his blood, showing that the new covenant, or rather the new covenant salvation and living is a work of grace. We're saved by grace through faith, and once we are saved, we live by grace. We as new covenant people, we walk by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, and not in our own strength, which Paul says is according to the law. He says, the law is not of faith. You can try to live by the law, by faith, as much as you want, but you will be contradicting Paul, who was inspired by the Spirit. It's going to be one or the other. But now that those doctrinal issues have been confronted, now that they've been corrected, Paul turns to address some of the, the, uh, the aftermath of all this, the damage that it has done, problems that it's caused. And if you've been a part of a church that has you know, struggled with doctrine, uh, struggled with divisive people, you know that there's a wake, there's, there's, there's devastation, uh, there's bodies, okay? There's, there's just so many things. And some in the church, because of all this, they were just jaded. Many of them were exhausted by all that had happened with the Judaizers. And what they were doing, as we see in verse 1, is that they were then avoiding uh, their Christian responsibility of restoring those who were overtaken by the sin of legalism. So Paul reminded them in verse 1 and 2 that the ministry of restoration is not only your Christian duty, it's also in keeping with Christ's character. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the ministry of restoration is intended for situations like this where people have been divided against one another, where people have been duped by false teaching, or they've been struggling with moral failure. And so doing our best as good brothers and sisters, we want to do our best to restore them to repentance, to fellowship with the Lord, fellowship with us. And Jesus, as we know, he provided more in-depth instruction about all of this in Matthew chapter 18. We looked at that. And then he also gave us an example of this in John 21. Uh, We know the story. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. And what did Peter do? He denied him, Jesus, before men three times. And then Jesus, in his character, in his goodness, his mercy, he, he brings Peter to himself and he restores him, restores him. And I'm sure it was probably very painful for Peter. Probably just to look Jesus in the eye was painful. But Jesus says, let's, let's move on from this. Let me restore you and you just do as you're told, Peter. You feed my lambs, you shepherd my sheep, you follow me. Jesus practiced what he preached, and it is for us to practice what he preached and how he lived. So as we talked about, we spent a number of Sundays organizing this theology of of the ministry of restoration from various places in the New Testament. Now, as Paul goes on here, he demonstrates that those who do not want to practice what Jesus preached They're not just just disobedient to Christ. Paul says that these people think themselves better than those who struggle with sin. Verse 3, they think they're better. He says, for if anyone thinks himself to be something that is in this whole context of restoring people, if he thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he's deceived himself. He actually is deceiving himself. These people esteem themselves as something 
when the Holy Spirit appraises them as nothing. That's just the reality. Okay? He appraises those people as nothing. We can say this another way. Those who are unwilling to help a fellow believer who is burdened by sin consider those people to be inferior to themselves. We think we're better, and we think they're inferior. Now, of course, nobody uses that language to, des- to describe themselves, but that's the reality. That's how they feel about themselves inside. They don't want to inconvenience themselves by helping others out of their struggles. They think themselves something, someone too important for others that are in messy situations. And, and granted, nobody likes messy situations, especially the messy situations of others, because other people's problems are way worse than ours. Actually, it's just that our sins on other people is just far more disgusting than it is in us. Amen? That's just how it is. Yeah. They think there's something. They're just really falling short of any real Christian standard. Jesus taught that the greatest among his people are those who do what? Serve. Serve. And he says that those who humble themselves are the greatest. In fact, I believe that those who are unwilling to serve others in, their, in, 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 in those people's times of need, I think that they think they're better than Jesus. I really believe that because Jesus did not come to planet Earth to be served by unworthy sinners. He came to serve us and then to ransom us with his blood. That's Mark 10, 45. Jesus uh, then assumed the lowest task among servants and he washed the feet of his disciples just hours before he spilled his blood for their salvation. Yeah, and, and someone cannot serve people in their struggles. They really think they're better than Jesus. At least they take a role that is higher than Jesus did. He took the role of a servant, and they want to take the role of master, I guess. Paul told the Philippians, he said, let this mind, or uh, he says, he's saying, let, have this mentality. Let it be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So for Jesus to humble himself, it meant becoming like us. It's not a complimentary text to humanity. The high king of heaven, who's worthy of angelic worship, stooped, he condescended to come to us to be dissolved of all reputation, to be dissolved of all privilege, of all worship, temporarily, to come and serve. To come and serve. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. So Jesus is the example. He, doesn't that sound hilarious? He is the Christian standard. Just before Paul said that we should have the same mentality as Jesus, he said this, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And here it is, but in lowliness of mind... Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. And then he says that was the mentality of Christ, which we should be adopting and practicing. Those who avoid doing this think themselves to be something, which Paul says is the the epitome of self-deception. A measly human being, sinful, broken, that cannot serve their comrade. And I, perhaps, you know, they're worse off than those who 
have been overtaken by sin, for at least the struggling sinner is aware of his plight, whereas these people are blinded by self-righteousness and can't see the trouble they're in. Humble people, regardless of who they are, they're always helping people. Amen? Living like Christ. Verse 4, Paul says, But, or rather, instead, let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So those who withdraw from the struggles of others have a tendency to think that their life and their service to the Lord is exemplary. And this is how they do that. Is What they do is, is they compare themselves to others that don't have it all together. That's a really easy way to, to think highly of yourself, right? Look at all the weaklings. Look at all the shortcomers. And then feel really good about yourself. Yeah, It's like a college basketball player who failed to get in the NBA. So he went and played against a team of middle school boys just to prove how great of a player he was. Christians do it all the time. They find someone who's not doing as well as they are, and then they make their case for their greatness. But comparing your strength to that of a weakling is no real comparison, and it's nothing to rejoice over. I don't know what it is about human nature that we evaluate ourselves in light of how poorly others are doing. It's just no standard at all. Paul says that before anyone rejoices over their work for the Lord, they need to examine themselves and their work accurately by a proper standard. The the, The word examine means to put something to the test to see if it meets the specifications, the standard, that which is acceptable. So if we compare ourselves to others, all we're doing is just lowering the bar And none of us will find God's approval based upon how well we did among our peers. The standard of approval will be how well each of us followed the Lord, regardless of how well or how poorly our peers did. So again, when Jesus met with Peter in John 21 to restore him, he said to Peter, he says, follow me. So he said, you know, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, follow me. Peter, follow me. What does Peter do? He does what we do. He immediately turned, and he looked at John, and he basically said to Jesus, yeah, but what about him? And Jesus basically said, what concern is that of yours, Peter? Follow me. Paul says to compare ourselves to other people is foolish. 2 Corinthians 12, or 10, 12. Our standard is the life and the work and the character of Jesus. You see, you and I serve the Lord God. I, I love that, that... I stand or fall based upon Jesus' evaluation of me, his perspective, his judgment. And and that's why the scriptures say the fear of man is a snare. But if you fear God alone, you don't have to fear man, right? Yeah. We serve the Lord God regardless of what someone else is doing or not doing. And there's also a danger in this mentality of thinking ourselves better than others, which is just self-righteousness. Consider Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. It's a great text because it says so much about us. At least the Pharisee says a lot about us. But the tax collector, he went to the temple and, 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 and for fear and for humility and unworthiness, it says that he stood afar off and he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, but the Pharisee, he stood and prayed in this manner. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You are just like other men. 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's standing way behind me in humility. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all my possessions. And the implication is, I know that he does not. I'm so much better than he is. God, I thank you that I'm not like him. But Jesus said that only the tax collector was justified, implying that the Pharisee was condemned. I think probably one of the most haunting things in the scriptures is when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you will never go where I'm going. Never. In the story, one is humbled, the other was self-righteous. One was honest about his sin, and the other is self-deceived, which leads to destruction. Verse 5, Paul says, for each one shall bear his own load. So last week, uh, of course, I was visited by Mr. Rusty Brower, who came to my office and he said, so Galatians 6, verse 2 says to bear one another's burdens, but verse 5 says that each one shall bear his own load. What are you going to do about that, Pastor Ben? It's not uncommon for Rusty to knock on my door and do something like that, but as usual, Rusty already had it figured out, and he just wants to see if I'm paying attention. If you don't know Rusty Brower, you have not lived. Uh, He is a man that, geez, has bore his load. In verse 2, Paul is talking about helping others recover from the mess that they're in. And he's saying their burden is nothing to rejoice over. But here, Paul is addressing every man's individual responsibility to serve the Lord. And his work for the Lord, your work for the Lord, is something to rejoice over. So Paul is really referring to two totally different things, Rusty. The the question to ask ourselves, the questions to ask ourselves are these. What's in my load Now, the load is a good thing. It's something that we should be able to rejoice over. But what's not in our load? Is it filled with service and sacrifice and love for the brethren? What have I done? What am I doing for the Lord that is worth rejoicing over? What what is it about my life that God approves of? You know, am I sharing the gospel and am I serving others? Am I discipling someone? Am I a light? Am I bearing the load that God has given me to fulfill and to rejoice over? The question here is, what will we have to show for ourselves on Judgment Day when God unpacks the load? What will we have to show for ourselves? Some will be like the servant in Matthew 25 who buried his master's money rather than investing it. It's a scary parable, by the way. It's one of the the harshest things that Jesus ever said in regard to this man. He's given a stewardship. He's given a responsibility by his master. And instead of fulfilling his responsibility, he buries it. While others take the responsibility God has given them, and they do invest it. They build on it. They grow it. And they do it all for the glory and the honor of God. So on Judgment Day, you and I will carry our own load. We will bring our works of faith before the throne of God. And I'll tell you, I hope that you bring a boatload. And I hope that that's your motive in life, so that you'll have all of this for the glory of God to lay at the feet of Jesus. Amen? We're not saved by those works, but we have our Lord to serve, who has sacrificed everything for us. And in appreciation and gratitude, we want something big to bring before Him. We will give an account for what we've done.
and not one success of someone else will be accounted to us. This is Paul's point there. And no one else's failures will make us look better. Everyone is going to either enjoy or lament their own spiritual successes. And I hope that we are there to celebrate. If you currently don't have much of a load to bear on Judgment Day because you're not doing anything for the Lord, you need to repent. You need to repent. It's time. It's time to obey. It's time to live for His glory. God has called you into His service. If you're a mother or a father, there's a few of them in Calvary Chapel. It's due season to be equipped for the work and fulfill your calling. You have a load to bear by the grace of God. And what a precious thing to have fulfilled your calling and to present it for the, to the Lord. Husbands, wives, you have a great work ahead of you, especially you wives, right wives? Paul and Peter provide plenty of instruction so that as Peter says, you can be heirs together of the grace of life. Too many people live as heirs together of the misery of life. But God has given you his word to equip you so that you can represent him in the world, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, being heirs together of the grace of life. Are you a Bible teacher? Paul would say, study to show yourself approved unto God, someone who does not need to be ashamed because you are rightly interpreting the word, the word of life. So study your brains out. Amen? We could go on. All of us have been called. Fulfill your calling for the praise of his glorious grace. Do something for the Lord. I would say do something hard for the Lord, something that requires a venture of faith. So anyway, in the churches of Galatia, these problems, there's those who didn't want to trouble themselves with those who were having troubles. Not too far removed from what happens in all churches. People thinking too highly of themselves, not uncommon. But it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be happening. It's all contrary to the character of Christ and his teaching and his example. We must get the gospel of grace right for us and for other people. Amen? We must. But there's other problems to address. Verse 6 through 8. He says, let him who is taught, that's the catechumen, that's you guys, and let him who is taught, I'm sorry, the word taught there is catechumen in the Greek. It means those who are under the instruction, those who hear the word. And then, so let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches, the catechizer. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, let me clarify real quickly. This is not an appeal for an increase in my compensation. Okay, I'm just teaching the text, everyone. All right? Uh, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know I don't like to talk about money. We don't pass a plate. Uh, we want people to, to give freely with a cheerful heart. But it's in our passage this morning. So in addition to those who weren't really caring for the other members of the fellowship who were struggling in sin, others were withholding compensation from those who were teaching the word to them. Now I can imagine that many people in, the, in a part of these fellowships were paralyzed by all of the confusion that was brought by the Judaizers, so much so they didn't know who to listen to or whose leadership to follow. Could you imagine? It must have been insane. But now that Paul has corrected all of the false doctrine, the people know a few things. They, they know who's teaching the truth and who's not. Paul has made that clear. And therefore they know whose teaching they should submit to and whose they should reject. 
and therefore they know whose ministry they should underwrite. Paul says that those who are being taught the word, he says, should share all good things with those who teach the word. Now, the same word for sharing in the context of compensation is used by Paul when writing to the Philippians. He says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, that is, when I was preaching the gospel in Macedonia, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you alone. Imagine that. Paul has just preached by his own means, by his sacrifice, his time. He's preached the gospel to these people, the gospel of life, the gospel of salvation. And only one church out of all of them says, you know what? That kind of looks expensive. <laughs> I wonder if he needs help with you know, room and board and travel and the rest. And just one of the churches said, hey, I think we should help him out here with some assistance. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. It really is of no benefit to a church when they withhold compensation from faithful pastors, when it's within their ability to do so. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul encouraged Timothy. He says, I want you to commit yourself fully to the ministry. And there's always this debate about, well, should pastors be full-time? Should they be bivocational? Should, uh, what should they be? Well, according to the scriptures, Paul says, hey, I left you in Ephesus to do it full-time. I don't want you to get distracted by anything else in the world. I want you to commit your life to this fully. So if Timothy was to commit himself fully to the ministry, but without compensation, he would starve, right? He would starve. So compensation is necessary. Paul told the Corinthians, he says, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.14. So those pastors and missionaries who are faithful to teach the word, Paul says they ought to make their living doing it. That is, if it's possible within the church that they serve. Now I realize that there are many pastors who are carving it out. Uh, I listened to one pastor at a missionary conference, and he's in, is it called, is it Nome, Alaska? There's like four people in his church. And he's up there faithfully ministering to these people and then reaching out to the natives in the village, a fishing village. And he loves what he's doing. But he can't survive up there without support from other places and, and without being a fisherman himself. Okay, now, that's a different context. If, if it's within the means of the church, they should take care of their pastors. Okay, God designed it this way for the health of the church. So it only hurts the church when they do not compensate the ministers of the word. Now, I, I want to clarify, um, my, all of my family's needs are met by faithful people in the church. So this is not an appeal for an increase in my compensation. Does everybody understand that? Okay, we're doing just fine. I don't have any holes in these particular clothes. Um, <laughs> camping, I got some fresh holes in my shirt, but it has nothing to do with you guys. But when this is not happening, this reciprocity within the body, it's hurtful. And Paul explains it. He says that, he says, God will not be mocked. People will reap what they sow, whether it is to their flesh, which leads to corruption, or to the spirit, which leads to everlasting life. Verse 7. Now, this whole illustration of sowing and reaping in the context of um, compensation, he used it when instructing the Corinthians about giving to the poor church in Jerusalem. He says to them, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully 
will also reap bountifully. Now, of course, those in the Word of Faith movement, the prosperity movement, they love to use this and say, if you give uh, unsparingly, then God will make you rich. Look, that's the dumbest theology that is in the church today. Just, well, it's just one of them, but it, it's in the top 10 of, of, of the dumbest. Okay? It's ungodly, it's carnal, and it's fleshly. You understand? It's fleshly. There's no prosperity of material things in the new covenant. There is none. There is none. Okay? If you want to debate that after church, I revel the opportunity. Because okay? I will not reduce the gospel of Christ to a material thing. Okay? I won't do that. So Paul says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9.6. When we come back to Galatians 6 verse 8, Paul adjusts the illustration a little bit, implying that those who do not compensate the ministry of the word is compensating that which satisfies his flesh, which leads to corruption. But those who compensate the minister of the word, he says, will reap the benefits of the word. He says, which is everlasting life. Okay, he's elevating the ministry of the word here to something, I think, quite special. Listen to what Paul told Timothy. He says, Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Now, the word doctrine just means teaching. Take heed to yourself, watch out for yourself, and to the teaching. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you, 1 Timothy 4.16. So those who hear the ministry of the word, if they're unsaved, it will give them the gospel of salvation. But to those who are saved, this everlasting life that we are enjoying is something we grow in through the ministry of the word. Okay? The ministry of the word is the most essential ministry of the church. You know, Paul, not Paul, but David, in Psalm 138, 2, said that God has exalted his word above his name, above his reputation, above everything. Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. Moses said that the word of God is our very life, Deuteronomy 32, 47. David said it's to be cherished above all things, Psalm 19, 10. His word is, is what saves, Romans 1, 16. It's that which sanctifies, John 17, 17. It increases our faith, Romans 10, 17. It's the source of wisdom, Psalm 1. God's instruction for marriage, as we've talked about, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, 1 Peter 3 through, uh, 1 through 7. Parenting, I could go on and on. So it's no wonder God would have the faithful teacher of the word be compensated. It's not because of the teacher, but because of what is taught. The teacher is the messenger. The word is the sustenance. But there's another thing that has to be said in light of all this. If a pastor is not teaching the whole counsel of God to his fellowship, if he's not teaching every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, he should first be rebuked if he will not commit to the exposition. If he will not commit to the exposition of God's word, he should be fired and compensation should be withheld because he's not a shepherd. Now, also, in this whole thing, there are many pastors who abuse this issue of compensation where they don't just have <laughs> all good things shared with them. They have nothing withheld from them because they are paid so much. They're paid so much. A pastor should be compensated within reason. No pastor should live lavishly, especially when hardworking and responsible people in their fellowship are struggling to get along. Do you know how that looks? How that looks? It's crazy. <clears throat> 
There was a painting that was discovered in the mountains of France, um, and I can't remember if it was the, the Albigenses or the Huguenots. <clears throat> they were not liked by the Catholic Church. But in one of the photographs, not photographs, because it was like in the 5th, 14th century, for you young people, they didn't have texting at that time either. <laughs> but um, it's a split, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a split painting. And in the one photograph, the Pope is on his throne and he's decked out in all of his garb and robe and jewelry and people are kneeling and kissing his ring. And then in the other side of the, the painting, um, there's Peter and John at the gate beautiful. And at their feet is the beggar. And he's wanting money and Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. So uh, about 10 million Huguenots and Albigenses were slaughtered uh, for much of their resistance. But this lavishness in the ministry should make us all sick. A pastor should live wisely and frugally. He should be responsible with his money. He should have to live by faith like everyone else. Okay, like everyone else. Those who are in the ministry for the money should be fired. Did that come across clear enough? Those who pedal from the pulpit <clears throat> should be fired. Compensation withheld. So before I start naming wealthy pastors that make me sick, we should move on. One more issue in the church of Galatia, and I'll get you out of here. Verse 9, he says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Now, if you've ever been a part of a church split or a fellowship that's you know, struggling with infighting and divisive people, bad doctrines, and you were among those who did all you could to keep the fellowship from imploding, you know exactly how exhausting it is. If you've just endured through all that, well, that was happening in Galatia, and the faithful people of the church, you guys imagine they were exhausted, they were worn out, they were frustrated. They were about to throw in the towel, but Paul says to them, don't stop. Don't give up on what is good. In due time, you will reap the benefits. Because what happens is every time when good people give up, you know what fills the vacuum? Evil. Every single time, it will be filled with something evil. So Paul is saying, hang in there, hold tight until things either recover or you've been rendered incapable of further ministry. If they have shut you up and shut you out, guess what? You can go to your knees and pray. That's, that's it. Hold tight. <clears throat> I think many of us here need to hear this in regard to our marriages. They don't all go that well. Many of you need to hear it in regard to your, your parenting, your, your kids. It's, it's a struggle. Many of you homeschool, many with your work, whatever. Paul says hang in there, especially when things are spiraling out of your control and falling apart. Let's, let's be honest too, your marriage could fail. Your, your kids might stray and your church could tank. But you, as the follower of Christ, you should remain faithful through it all, doing what's right even when it hurts. Okay? So that when the dust settles, you are blameless, so that you're above reproach for the glory of God. Amen. Doing what's right even if it hurts. Hang in there. Be faithful. I, I know for certain that there will be rejoicing in the end because faithfulness is always worth rejoicing over. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So again, when a church is really screwed up, it's really easy to remain passive or just check out because you've been hurt before. You've stepped up, 
You've said things, you've tried to serve only to get burned. And so after that, you just let opportunities pass you by. Paul says, don't do that. It's worth taking a hit for the sake of others. It's worth taking a hit for the sake of others. Okay? It's okay to get beat down for someone else. Peter says, don't ever get beat down because of some dumb thing you've done. But it's always worth getting beat up for someone else. So when we have opportunity and the task is within our ability and means, we should do good to everyone in our path, both believers and unbelievers. But then there's this thing on the side here, Paul saying, as we do good, we should always be careful not to exhaust ourselves on the unbelieving world. Okay? The family of God comes first, even if our church family is dysfunctional. Okay? Amen? All right. Next week, I hope to finish the chapter. Uh, it probably won't happen. I got some stuff I want to talk about in the chapter that are important. But um, everything, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, I believe is important. So we'll get to it. Why don't you stand up and I'll get you out of here to your Independence Day celebration. Well, Father, every church family is dysfunctional because it's filled with us. But we pray, Lord, that, that by the instruction of your word, as we submit to the Spirit and walk by grace, Lord, that we would, as the goal is, as your vision is, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So, Lord, just help us, we pray. Help our church family to become more and more healthy. Lord, from the marriages in our family to our young people that are trying to navigate the insanity of our culture. Lord, as we reach out to a broken world, Lord, it's clear that we need you. So help us, I pray. Help us to be humble. Help us to look out for the needs of others. Help us to be faithful to the ministry of the word. And Lord, help us to be people of opportunity. And even as Paul says in Romans 12, help us to look for opportunity, to be hospitable. Lord, thank you. Thanks for my church family. Lord, I'm so grateful. And um, yeah, it's a blessing to serve them. So just lavish your grace upon them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.